You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we are in, I think, what is turning out to be a nine-part series on the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and we've come to, I think, our eighth study, and we're going to read tonight in Genesis chapter 3, read the same passage we read actually last Lord's Day evening from verse 8, and we'll read it just through to the end of verse 15. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike. Actually, it's the same word. You will crush his heel. Sometimes good in an evening service to begin the message with a Bible quiz. The answer to this question is a text from the New Testament. And those of you who know that text will immediately know the answer. No hands, please, and no answers on a postcard. What is the reason the Son of God appeared? What is the reason the Son of God appeared? I should say smile if you know the answer. Uh, The answer is found in the first letter of the Apostle John, chapter 3 and verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was, if you don't know the verse, think about how you would fill it in. The reason the Son of God appeared was, says John, to destroy the works of the devil. And that is a great clue to understanding the passage that we're looking at together this evening. I want you to have it in the back of your mind, especially as we focus here on Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So far, we have seen three characters walk onto the stage of Genesis 3. More accurately, 
one of them has slithered onto the stage. They have come in this order, the serpent, the woman, and the man. The serpent appears to be an expression or an instrument of a fallen angel. The Bible speaks to us about this figure later on as being an expression of the presence and character and power of the devil. And just as the Apostle Paul says about sinful man in Romans chapter 1, that at the end in our rebellion against God, we not only rebel against Him, but we approve others who rebel against Him. And uh, you see that wherever people are engaged in flagrant disobedience to the law of God in order to buttress themselves, defend themselves, they have to draw others into their disobedience to God. And for whatever reason, the Scriptures, I think, are not very clear. Was the evil one jealous of the fact that God had made a new kind of creature as His image and His Son? It's clear that the evil one manifesting His power through this serpent is seeking to jealously draw the man and the woman away from the presence of God, the love of God, and fellowship with God. He knows, we might say, that he cannot ultimately destroy God's purposes for their lives, but he wants them to stop enjoying those purposes. He wants them to feel, not only to think, but to feel that God is narrow-minded, that God is mean, and that God does not really want the best for them. Actually, this text, Genesis 3.15, is the text that gives the ultimate lie to the lie of Satan. But there we have it. He leads the woman. He deceives her. Uh, she makes that confession herself. When God comes to her, God appears, as it were, as the judge. He comes, he cross-examines her, what's going on here? And you remember how she passes the buck to the serpent. The serpent deceived me, she says, and I ate. And then this fascinating description that we have that as she ate, we're told, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And although in a sense, uh, Genesis kind of glosses over that fact without further comment. Uh, if you are sensitive to the teaching of the Bible, you want to scream out to Adam, Adam, what possessed you not to guard this woman God had given to you? And uh, because Adam is faced with the ultimate choice, the God he loves or the woman he loves, no more powerful way to bring Adam down. You might want to say humorously, the way to Adam's heart was through his stomach because he ate the fruit of the tree, but actually the way to Adam's heart was through the woman because she was God's best gift to him. And so God comes and he cross-examines Adam as well. 
and uh, both Eve and Adam are found guilty, and there is a particular judgment related to their calling, their sacred callings in life, the bearing of children and the part of Eve, the, the privilege of bringing in God's final kingdom in the part of Adam. And there is one character left to be judged. And there's kind of difference here. There is no cross-examination here. God has met this evil one before. God has judged this evil one before, thrown him, as it were, excommunicated him from the garden of heaven, just as he is about to excommunicate the man and the woman from the garden of Eden. And so, there is no cross-examination. There is simply a judgment. And so, God says in verse 15, He says, "'Cursed are you above all livestock,' verse 14, "'and all the wild animals crawling on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life.'" And then this, the, the ultimate curse that is ultimately the curse that cures our curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I believe that this is the single most important verse in the whole of the Old Testament. Very famous uh, philosopher early on in the 20th century, Alfred North Whitehead, who gave the Gifford Lectures here in Scotland, and the lectures were published as a book called Process and Reality. Don't encourage you to read it unless uh, you've plenty of Tylenol nearby. It is, uh, it is not easy going. But he makes a comment in that book about the history of Western philosophy. He says, the whole of the story of European philosophy can be summed up in this way. It is a series of footnotes to Plato. It's a most interesting statement. Plato, the great Greek philosopher. The whole history of Western European philosophy just seems like a whole series of footnotes working through, working out the issues that you find in the philosophy of Plato. Now, you understand the principle, even if you don't care a, a rap for Plato, that here are statements, philosophical questions being raised that, uh, like mathematical problems, that the centuries in the future will spend their energies working through. And I think we can say the same about Genesis 3.15. I say I think it's the single most important verse in the Old Testament because I think you can say the rest of the Old Testament is a series of footnotes to Genesis 3.15. It's a long narrative telling us what Genesis 3.15 means, how Genesis 3.15 will work out. And I think you can see that immediately. God is coming 
to the serpent, and he is saying there is going to be a grand division from this point onwards between your seed and the seed of the woman. Now, he clearly does not mean by that that uh, women are going to be afraid of snakes. Something much more profound involved in this statement as the rest of the Scriptures understand it. This is, a, this is a prophecy of the way in which the seed of the serpent, that is, those who are caught up in alienation from God, rebellion against God, antagonism towards God, they are going to be in perpetual conflict over against the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman who will eventually in this passage be covered by the skin of an animal sacrifice. And then he says, as that conflict goes on throughout history, it will come to a climax. Not just the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but now the serpent himself, you, says the Lord, you will crush the heel of the seed of the woman. But even as you crush his heel, he will crush your head. This is the story of a, a conflict of massive proportions. And in effect, it is the story of the whole Bible. It's the story that Jesus puts into a single verse in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. It's the picture of Revelation chapter 12, where this serpent, we are told, has grown into a great red dragon who seeks to devour the Christ child who is born. And then when the Christ child is saved, the dragon goes off in pursuit of those who belong to the Christ child. And so for that reason, I say I think it may just be the single most important text in the whole of the Old Testament. There are three reasons, at least tonight, that I think this is especially important for us to understand. The first is this, that these words provide us with the key to understanding the whole of human history. If you speak to historians today, they seek to record and interpret facts. But no secular historian today believes that there is a plot line running through history from beginning to end. No secular historian will be able to say to you on the basis of his historical studies, I can explain to you why things are the way they are, and I can tell you where they are ultimately going. The historians of antiquity and other historians throughout the ages have believed that history, is, it moves in cycles. And uh, there is much to say for that view, isn't there? Civilizations rise, civilizations fall, another civilization rises. We're actually living in a time when there are such dramatic 
changes taking place among the nations and within the nations that one almost feels we may be at such a time just now. But a historian is not able to say to you, I can tell you the meaning of this. Because for the secular historian, there is no meaning. To be meaning, there needs to be a plot line. To be meaning, there needs to be a purpose. To be meaning, there needs to be an author who writes meaning into the story. And here, right at the beginning, as we saw in Genesis 1-1, the simplest Christian knows something about everything, that it was created by God for His glory. So now, in the light of the fall, the Christian also knows something, that the whole of history has this meaning, that underneath it all there is a plot line, and that plot line is a story of conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Of course, that's very clear in the Bible, isn't it? Right from the very beginning. It's here already in Genesis 3 there is this, there is this antagonism that begins, and in the very next chapter, in this little nuclear family, the seed of the serpent murders the seed of the woman. And as the story goes on, the the Tower of Babel, the desire to destroy the kingdom of God, and all the conflicts that go on throughout the unraveling of this promise that God has given, so that when you read the Bible, there's something you always need to bear in mind. Every Old Testament narrative, you need to ask the question, how does this fit into the conflict? David and Goliath, perhaps the most obvious illustration. What's going on in David Goliath? Well, it's a story about a big fellow being beaten up by a little fellow. No, 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 no. We fellows beat up big fellows all the way through history. This is the kingdom of God, the seed of the woman, about to be annihilated by the seed of the serpent and God using the small things, as He characteristically does, the weak things, as Paul says, to confound the things that are big and mighty. This is the seed of the woman overcoming the seed of the serpent. And there, in other occasions, for example, in the book of Daniel, here is the kingdom of God ravaged, its choicest members taken captive into Babylon. What's going on here? It is the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. And all you need to do is to turn your Bible to the opening pages of Matthew's gospel, and aren't you caused to scratch your head? Why is it that uh, Herod is so upset? Why is it there is this pogrom of these little boys around Bethlehem? Because the seed of the serpent is always seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. What's the lesson? It's a very simple lesson. Paul underlines it in Ephesians chapter 6. Christian, he says, life is not merely flesh and blood. 
You look out into the world today, into our Western world, into our British world today, as gospel principles are despised and biblical culture is demeaned and overturned, and you want to blame the politicians, and you want to complain about this group and that group, and uh, you lose sight of the fact that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, that the meaning of history is not to be found on the surface of human cause and effect of monetary policy. Don't you get the impression nowadays that there are two things that run history? One is money and the other is sex. It's amazing. And our minds are focused on it. Economic policy. And what are we going to do about gender and sexual issues? And as Christians, we can, we can be led along until we find ourselves saying, actually, when our eyes are open to what the Scriptures teach, we find ourselves saying with Eve, I was deceived. I thought I was just wrestling against flesh and blood. But no, no, we're wrestling against principalities and powers. And the great thing about the Bible is it says to us, you know, Calvin uses the metaphor of spectacles for the Bible, which if you wear them is wonderful illustration. I take these things off, and you are a blur. Those I know well, and I know where you're seated, I can just about make out. And I put these spectacles on, and I see you perfectly. You are all so beautiful to look at. And you see, as a Christian, I can live with the spectacles off. I don't think I'm just dealing with flesh and blood. But when I put the spectacles on, I understand, I begin to understand the meaning of the whole of human history. History is a battleground in which the seed of the serpent seeks to destroy the seed of the woman. But then there's a second principle emerges here in this promise that's made. Because these words not only are the key to understanding the whole of human history, they're also, I think, the central theme of biblical prophecy. The Bible's full of prophecy, isn't it? The things that are going to happen. But what's the line that runs through all of that prophecy? Well, here it is. The day will come when you, serpent, Satan, when you will crush or break the ankle of the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will crush your head. Now, you don't need much imagination, do you, as a Christian? But you don't need any imagination at all because there are one or two places in the New Testament where the New Testament makes it quite clear that Jesus and the apostles understood this ultimately to be a reference to what He would do. And what a picture this is of what Jesus did, of how throughout the whole of His life, the serpent was crushing His heel, and how when that conflict came to a climax just as the serpent crushed his heel and thought he had got him in death. 
It was actually by that death that the Lord Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. And this hope that there is, one day the Savior will come, it's very vivid in the Old Testament Scriptures, and it ex- keeps on expounding this text. Actually, in the very, very first words of chapter 4, it looks to me as though Eve hoped that her first son would be this seed who would crush the serpent's head. Um, you know, I've never given birth. Obviously, I've never given birth to a baby, but I don't, I don't know women who have given births to baby who say things like, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I mean, that's, you know, if you've just been hours in labor, that sounds a phenomenally eloquent thing to say. So, what's she saying? I think she's saying, maybe I've got the man, the man who would crush the head of the serpent. But instead, what she got was the seed of the serpent who would crush the heel And then you remember with Noah, it happens again in Noah, the son of Lamech. Here's here's Lamech and Mrs. Lamech, and they're sitting there having their afternoon tea, and uh, Mrs. Lamech says, by the way, Lamech, we're, we're going to have a baby. And he says, well, what will we call the baby if it's a boy? And because they are familiar with these Semitic languages, they agree to calling the baby Noah which is intimately related to the sound of the word that means rest. Maybe this will be the baby boy who will give the land rest. Isn't that interesting? God had cursed the land. Such hard work. The land wasn't resting when Adam was working. It was fighting when he was working. Thorns and thistles, maybe this will be the one. But he wasn't the one. And so, the story goes on. Abraham is given this promise. In your seed, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here he is, you know. I mean, he's staggering along, almost a hundred years old. And Sarah's there in her nineties, I mean, think of it. This is, this is like Prince Philip and Her Majesty living into the next decade and having a baby. I mean, as Paul says, the thing about Abram was he looked at his body and he said, I've got to stop looking at this body. It's as good as dead. I've got to trust in the promise of God. And he goes through all these shenanigans seed of the serpent seeking to destroy, the seed of the woman, the people of God in Egypt being destroyed. And uh, God comes to their rescue again and again and again it happens because the people are beginning to understand that God is keeping this promise. And if he's keeping the promise that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, then surely he's going to keep the promise that in the seed of Abraham the nations would be blessed. And you think how incredible it is that we are sitting here as Christians tonight? The only reason we are sitting here as Christians tonight is because God kept this promise through a man who was a hundred years old. 
Because without keeping that promise to Abraham, no David, no Jesus, no church, no Christians. So this is a stupendous key to all of biblical prophecy. You remember how Isaiah looks over the horizon and uh, in the second half of his great prophecy, he sees this figure coming over the horizon. He's, he's looking into the future, and he sees the people are going to be in bondage, in exile, but he sees there's a deeper bondage, and so they're going to need a greater deliverance, and he sees this figure that's called the servant of the Lord coming over the horizon. He's a, he's a wonderful figure, so full of grace, so full of wisdom, power, And then he begins to see what's going to happen to this figure. And he says these words. It's not the same language in the text of the Old Testament, but I've often wondered if there's at least a connection in ideas and some of the most famous words in the Bible in Isaiah 53. He would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. It's the whole story all the way along. This is why I say, perhaps this, is, perhaps this is a help to you as you read the Bible and study the Bible, because when you're, you're reading it, you, you need to have something that will help you to make sense of all the different bits and pieces. And what you see running all the way through is conflict. And yet at the same time, the fulfillment of this prophecy that God had promised to keep, that one day the seed would come. And while he was being crushed by the serpent in his heel, he would crush the serpent's head. And that's the third thing, of course, that we need to notice. It's this, that this is actually at the end of the day not only the clue to understanding the whole of world history and the secret to grasping the heart of biblical prophecy, but this is, at the end of the day, a promise of our Lord Jesus Christ's victory. And he does this, doesn't he? You read through any of the synoptic gospels, those first three gospels that seem to have the same general view of Jesus, And you notice something all the way running through them all the time, that from the beginning of his life in Matthew's gospel, he's engaged, and even even before he knows what's happening in his life, he's being wrapped up in Joseph's arms and taken away to Egypt, fleeing from Herod. From the beginning of his life right through to the end, it's a story of the seed engaged in the final conflict. Uh, You see that, don't you, after he's been baptized, and the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to engage in conflict with the evil one. And then don't you wonder, as I've often wondered, why is it that there is such demonic activity in Palestine when Jesus is present? You don't read about that anywhere else in the Bible. Yes, there are demons, but you don't find anything like this. 
You don't find this actually in the Acts of the Apostles, little touches of demon possession, but you don't find men wandering around in the caves whose names are legion because they feel there is an entire legion of demons in them when it takes only one demon to drive a man out of his mind. So, what's the reason? Well, you see, it's behind the scenes, isn't it? It's not because legion was so resistant to the devil's power that these massive numbers of demons tormented him. It was because Jesus was going to come. And so all the forces of hell, this is what you do in a military operation, isn't it? You've got to defend your kingdom against the most powerful attack, and so you bring all of your resources there. And that's what happens. Something very interesting happens in the Gospels, doesn't it? For most of the Gospels, Satan is seeking to stop Jesus going to the cross. Have you noticed that? It's in the temptations in the wilderness. Choose another way. And then just at the end of the Gospels, he seems to flick a switch, and now he wants to rush Jesus to the cross, and he uses Judas Iscariot. What's going on here? Well, earlier on, he wants to stop Jesus going to the cross, and he is defeated. So now he changes his tactic, and his tactic is this. Let's get Jesus to the cross in our time and not in his time. And all the way through, right through the Garden of Gethsemane. Why, why did Jesus' perspiration in Gethsemane seem like great globules of bloody sweat? Why does Luke, the physician, describe Jesus' physical condition in the Garden of Eden as being in an agony, which means being in a conflict, being in a face-to-face -face wrestling match, because the day has come, the day that was promised in this day of judgment for Adam and Eve, the day when the Lord Jesus would enter into final conflict with the evil one and win the victory that would break Satan's power destroy sin's reign, bring about the pardon of the guilt of those who trust in Him, and begin to usher in by His resurrection the new world and the new life that Christians are able to enjoy. And now it's done. It's not finished. The conflict, says Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, will go on having been defeated by the seed of the woman, as Revelation 12 says, the serpent will go off to pursue those who belong to the seed of the woman, and he'll never give up. He knows he can't, he can't take you away out of the grip of Christ, but he will make sure he does everything he can to prevent you from enjoying that security in Christ and deceiving you so that you think 
It's just a matter of flesh and blood. So what's the message? What's the, what's, as they say nowadays, what's the takeaway for us? First of all, it's this. He's one. One day that will be clear. But he's already won the victory. The decisive battle has already been fought. We must never believe the evil one when he says, I'm going to defeat you. We must learn to say to him, God's prophecies have been fulfilled in my Savior Jesus. He has defeated you for the first and most decisive of times. Second thing is this, we need to learn that we actually live in a war zone, that Christ builds His church on enemy-occupied territory, and therefore the Christian life isn't easy. What Hugh was referring to earlier on, all the stuff that pours into Africa and into other countries and the God channel. Do you know what the message is? The message is Jesus wants you to have health and wealth and happiness. Where do you find that in the New Testament? You want to tell that to the Apostle Paul? As he feels the thrashing of the 39 lashes and says, This is actually what it means to be a Christian. It is conflict all the way home. Why is that so important? It's important so that you're never surprised in the life of the church or in your personal life if you find yourself in conflict situations where your faith is under pressure, where sometimes subtle and strange things happen, where there is a cost involved to standing and remaining faithful. Don't be surprised. Put on the spectacles. Oh, help. And you put on the spectacles and you say, Oh, I should have known this. It's in the Bible. It's in Genesis 3.15 and all the way through. And when we understand these things, the other thing that we understand is that if we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, then our weapons, as Paul says, are not carnal, but spiritual. And so we don't use the weapons against the world that the world uses against the church. You ever watched some of these Christian protests and looked at the faces on one side of the street and the faces on the other side of the street as they shout abuse to one another? And alas, the Christians mirror image the tactics of the seed of the serpent as though we were wrestling against flesh and blood. And we need to learn, and the Scripture's full of this, Jesus is full of this, that the kingdom of darkness is never destroyed by the kinds of weapons the kingdom of darkness itself uses. God uses the weak and the insignificant to confound the strong and the significant, and to pull the rug from underneath them. Because at the end of the day, the one who understands this, the one who trusts in Christ, perhaps someone is demeaning you and persecuting you, and you you look beyond 
and you say not to them but to the evil one, I know what you're doing, but I am in Jesus' hand. And so instead of angry response and retaliation, I stand in grace. I turn the other cheek. I show kindness. I heap coals of fire on the head. And I live Jesus-like. And I pray with all prayer, Lord, once I was blind, but now I see. Open the blind man's eyes, the blind woman's eyes, and show them your saving grace. And he does. And then afterwards they say, you know, I can't even explain what it was I saw in you that made me hunger and thirst for something I didn't know what I sought until I found it in Jesus Christ. And then I saw what you had and what made you the woman you were. And I said, I want to leave this cave of darkness and to dwell in the same light she does. And so I came. I trusted in Jesus Christ. So it's all here. Time is gone. This is just the beginning. It's all here. Keep reading from Genesis 3.15 to the end of the Bible and to the end of your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you've given to us in your word. Thank you that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproving and for transforming and for training in righteousness. We lament, Father, that because we don't know our Bibles better, we don't see things as clearly as we might. Oh, we pray Grind the lenses for our spectacles. Keep them clean by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see clearly that we may love you fully and follow you well and be beacons of light to those who are in darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.